Robert Byrd served the citizens of the state of West Virginia as a United States Senator for over 51 years. In the early 1940s, he was a founding member of the Ku Klux Klan chapter in Sophia, West Virginia. Ultimately rising to serve as the exalted Cyclops. In 1959, he hired one of the first black congressional staffers. He went on to vote against both Civil Rights Act of 1964 and 1965. He then changed his mind and voted for the Civil Rights Act of 1968. In 1993, he railed against the effort to allow gays to serve in the military. Then subsequently supported the Defense of Marriage Act and the efforts to enact a federal marriage amendment. In 2001, he rather famously said, I think we talk about race too much. I think those problems are largely behind us. Then in the 2002 to 2003 Senate term, he was one of only 16 senators to receive a 100% rating from the NAACP. He went on to support Barack Obama's bid for president. Upon his death, the NAACP released a statement praising Senator Byrd, saying he became a champion for civil rights and liberties and came to consistently support the NAACP rights agenda. Interesting. I find his life interesting because in my opinion, he's the epitome of contradictions. He moved forward. He grew into the times and fits and starts, changing his mind and his opinion slowly, back and forth, moving forward, making mistakes, falling backward, and then slowly inching forward again. He went from exalted Cyclops of the Ku Klux Klan to what the NAACP described as a champion for civil rights in the span of a lifetime. I'm not sure he ever got there on LGBT rights, but I guess we can't have everything. In his book, The Audacity of Hope, President Barack Obama wrote the following about his first days as a U.S. Senator and meeting Senator Byrd. Listening to Senator Byrd, I felt with full force all the essential contradictions of me in this new place, with its marble busts, its arcane traditions, its memories, and its ghosts. I pondered the fact that, according to his own autobiography, Senator Byrd had received his first taste of leadership in his early 20s as a member of the Raleigh County Ku Klux Klan, an association that he had long disavowed, an error he attributed no doubt correctly, to the time and place in which he'd been raised, but which continued to surface as an issue throughout his career. How is a life defined? Can we escape our past? Is redemption really possible? I've been thinking about these questions a lot as I watch what seems like a steady stream of past transgressions of those in public life be exposed and paraded around. By now, we're all pretty accustomed to how this works. It's reported that it was discovered that so-and-so did or said such-and-such. Then the crowds are whipped into a frenzy and we band together to run them out of town. No sin too great or small, public condemnation and removal from public life and the erasure of their existence is the remedy. I know this because I too get caught up in that frenzy. 
And my first instinct has frequently been, they've got to go. Doesn't matter who they are, what they've done, or who they've wronged. They've got to go. But honestly, I'm getting a little tired of being angry. I really can't keep it up much longer. I've been struggling lately and feeling incredibly down about the state of the world. And I've got a lot of questions about who and what we are. How do we function in a world where it seems like hate is coming out of the woodwork? Where every day someone else in public life is revealed to have done or said something terrible in their past? Is there life after disgrace? Can we still make space for people who've wronged others to participate in our society? If so, what does that look like? Before you get all excited, I don't know the answer. I have no idea. And honestly, I doubt that I ever will. But I've been doing a lot of thinking, reading, and reflecting on finding a way forward without driving myself crazy. And I'm trying to use my Unitarian Universalist faith to help make sense of the world and my place in it. First, I think my, or our, faith calls on us to seek the truth and start there. So I'm trying to step back, see the bigger picture, and be at least a little more realistic. I naturally tend to look at every scenario I'm presented with through the lens of my experience. I think most of us do, because it's all we know. Author Siri Husfeldt writes, Each person does see the world in a different way. There is not a single unifying objective truth. We are all limited by our perspective. I'm trying to realize that as hard as it may be, that many people were raised in an environment where certain things were okay. That certainly doesn't make them okay, but it allows me to calm down just a bit and think at least a little more rationally. So for instance, when a picture of a well-known public figure in blackface in the early 80s surfaces, I was, like most of you, immediately shocked and outraged and thought that surely everyone knew then that blackface was not acceptable. You see, I grew up in Central Maryland, and I went to school on a military base. To say it was pretty diverse is an understatement. So yes, I do think that in the early 80s, blackface was not the sort of thing I would have seen where I grew up. But if I had grown up in Southern Virginia, perhaps my experience would have been a little different. I think that's actually been proven by the stream of similar pictures that have since surfaced. Apparently, it was quite the common occurrences, occurrence on college campuses during that time frame. Again, doesn't make it right, but it helps me understand. You know who wasn't surprised at all when the blackface pictures started surfacing? My black friends. Not one. Not a single black person I know was shocked that in the 80s, blackface was still common. Not one. And sadly, a quick Google search reveals that there are still to this day a handful of reported cases every single year. This confuses me because my naive mind thought we had moved past this sort of thing. Reverend Dr. William Barber, pastor of Greenleaf Christian Church in Goldsboro, North Carolina, founder of Moral Mondays, and many other things that I could not possibly list, and pretty just all-around generally awesome guy, writes, we can't make sense of what's happening in front of us 
because somehow we failed to see that this has been happening all along. I was blind, but now I see. So my new reality is that we as a society are not who I thought we were. I still consider myself lucky to live in what is sometimes referred to as the liberal bubble that runs from right around here, north, and then pretty much down the west coast. We react with outrage and disbelief when we hear someone utter racist, sexist, homophobic, anti-Semitic, anti-Arab, or anti-immigrant words. How dare they, we think. Certainly we are better than this. But sadly, we're not. Not really. It's a tough pill to swallow, but it's true. I mean, technically we, those of us in the sanctuary, might be better than this. But as a society, maybe not so much. And as strange as it may seem, I'm finding that going ahead and admitting that everything is a mess and we truly appear to be headed for hell in a handbasket helps me stay sane. And it helps me hope for the future. Go figure. Are you... Are you... <laughs> Our Unitarian Universalist faith also teaches me to search for meaning and look inside myself for the answers I seek. DeRoe K. Farrar, music director at the First Unitarian Church of Portland, writes, I wonder if in our efforts to be the change we wish to see in the world, we stop short at our ideal selves, the idea of ourselves we are most comfortable with. I wonder how often I think I've already been the change, and I'm waiting idly for the tendencies of the world to catch up. I'm unsettled by how frequently I'm surprised by my own social idiocy. How many times need I screw up the same person's preferred pronoun? Or note that I am not surprised that the person who just nearly ran me off the road is of a certain race and or age. Or make immediate assumptions about someone because of what I perceive to be their class. Or maybe this is a better question. How many times do I need to make mistakes at the expense of other people or people's groups before I'm ready to admit that I'm not any better at this than the bigoted and willfully ignorant. When I first read these words by Darrow, my immediate thought was guilty. As much as it might shock you to hear, I am not perfect. Yes, it's true. I am guilty of being judgmental and making assumptions. I'm not proud to admit it, but I have assumed a terrible driver must be of a certain age, sex, or ethnicity. And then I felt a certain sense of pride when I pulled up next to them and I was right. I have said inappropriate things and made off-color jokes. I've heard people, some very, very close to me, say things that would make you cringe yet I have said nothing. I've even given people a hug when they probably didn't want it. I grew up in a very affectionate family where joking around and harassing each other was what we did, so it's what I know. And yes, I have been guilty a time or two of disregarding someone else's thoughts or feelings when I couldn't see where they were coming from because my vision of the world didn't jive with theirs. 
Exactly. <laughs> you get it. <laughs> I'm trying, I am trying to do better, but it's a struggle. And every day I learn and every day I stumble. I'm committing to listening and actually hearing what people say to me. I'm committing to calling out injustice when I see it. I'm committing to learning and using preferred pronouns. And I'm committing to continuing to ask questions and look inside myself for ways that I can model change. In the words of Mahatma Gandhi, if we could change ourselves, the tendencies in the world would also change. I will, however, point out that I'm not committing to less hugging. We need hugs now more than ever, so if you don't want one, you're just going to have to tell me. Next, and I think this is the hard one, my faith teaches me to seek justice. But it calls on us to couple justice with compassion. What does justice look like in the cases where transgressions are moral? When a law has been broken, it's easier, I think. There's a system in place to deal with those who break the law. Certainly not going to argue the merits or effectiveness of that system today, but at least it's there as a starting point. But when the crime is more of a moral nature, how do we deal with that? And who gets to decide? How do we use our faith when we are faced with those who have hurt us, hurt those we care about, or committed transgressions on such a scale that we can't even begin to comprehend forgiveness? Does intent matter in these cases? How about context? Should the fact that the perpetrator grew up in a different time or place with different social norms factor into the punishment? Honestly, again, I'm not sure of the answers to these questions, but I will admit that I do struggle with watching otherwise good people be ruined because of a stupid decision or poorly thought out word when they were younger. Maybe we really are seeing a draining of the swamp. When you drain the swamp, the creatures come out, even some you were surprised to see in there. But in the end, isn't that a good thing? Because we can only defeat what we can see. Now we just have to figure out what to do with all these creatures. How do we couple justice with equity, compassion, and respect for inherent worth and dignity? Lastly, I think my faith tries to teach me patience. I say tries because clearly I'm failing. Life, like spirituality, is a journey. Change does happen, but it happens slowly, very slowly sometimes. Progress is not straightforward. It's a jagged line full of ups and downs. Forward, back, back again, finally forward again. The world is messy, and so are the people who inhabit it. We are all flawed. But the arc of the universe truly does bend towards justice, and I think we need to stay focused on that. As Reverend Dr. Barber points out, every bit of progress our society has made has been met with backlash. But he also says, we face some difficult days ahead, but don't let anyone tell you America hasn't seen worse. Our foremothers and fathers faced far greater odds with far fewer resources. It's our time now. Arm in arm, we're moving forward together, not one step back.
This brings me back to Senator Byrd. I wonder what we would do with him if he were still alive. Would we give him the time to change his views? He's proof that people can and do change, even if it seems to take forever. How do we give them the space and time to do that? Because I think the reality is that we need all the allies we can get if we're going to achieve the equity and equality we strive for in our lifetimes. And who is better to show the way out of the darkness than one who's been there and knows how to escape? In the end, I believe we're the sum of all the parts of our life. The good, the bad, the ugly, sometimes the really ugly. It is my hope that when my time is over, I will be judged as having done my best. I've certainly, make, I've certainly made mistakes along the way, but overall I tried. I only hope the good outweighs the bad. And I hope the same for you. Amen and blessed be.